And one thing from all of this is clear. There is no Me Too without a clear legal framework and a solid press. Hey, what's up? Welcome to In The Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. You guys, this week we're talking about a super important topic with some really amazing guests. Joining us from Berkeley, California is Gisela Perez de Acha. She's a human rights lawyer, journalist, and a professor at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Bienvenida, Gisela. Hi, ¿cómo están todos, todas? Mucho gusto. Muy bien, muy bien. And calling us from Mexico City is Melissa Amezcua. She's a reporter with El Universal Newspaper in Mexico. Bienvenida, Melissa. Hola, muchas gracias. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, listen... Right here in the United States, we are reeling, a lot of us, because of new information regarding a particular issue around Me Too. It's a Supreme Court Justice uh, Kavanaugh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Mm. But the point is, is that there is a lot of the returning of what's happening with Me Too. And we've been covering pretty consistently Me Too and the feminist movements around the world, and certainly in Mexico. So today we're going to focus our show um, to update what's been happening recently in Mexico. There's a lot of news, and it's important. So you guys know I'm Mexican. <laughs> yes, you, know, you are. So there is a long, long, long-ass tradition. I just want people to know, Yep. right? Mexican women have been organizing for decades, for centuries. Okay, so their activism and their engagement and their challenging of institutional power and sexism and machismo has been going on for many, 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 many decades. Mm -hmm. But recently, a lot of this has come into focus um, with the Me Too movement. And just in the past several weeks, there have been two cases of rape of a 17-year-old girl, allegedly by four police officers, a 70-year-old woman and a six-year-old girl who was raped and murdered. And basically, this has really pushed uh, the movement back into the focus with a hashtag called No Me Cuidan, Me Violan, mm-hmm. which is hashtag They Don't Take Care of Me, They Rape Me. There's also been like this other kind of activism. It's known as the glitter protest because there was hot pink glitter Yep. thrown on Jesus Orta Martinez, who is Mexico City's security minister. And these were feminist activists who were basically protesting violence against women. They threw this glitter. Right. You know, it hasn't just been about these kind of really interesting in-your-face tactics. On Friday, an autonomous and independent feminist assembly was announced. So, Melissa, you're on the ground in Mexico City. What's up with this new kind of um, energy Mm. with the Me Too Mexico? What are the updates that you can give to us? The feminist movement just took a turn that nobody was expecting in some way, because uh, usually feminist protests were really calm and like bien portadas. And suddenly this news broke and I think it took an anger phase, Mm. which uh, women are tired of being murdered and the impunidad and the lack of justice for women and the lack of visibility. I think it was unexpected, but it was also about time that all this happened. And what I see is a lot of anger, a lot of organization. But this is going on beyond Mexico City, too. I think there's a lot of focus on the protests 
and what women have been doing. I know people saw those images of Angela de Independencia, you know, being vandalized. But this movement is not just limited to the capital, to the DFA. Is that correct? Yeah, it's like it's a, a national movement, especially in the in the south. I'm from Sinaloa, so where, uh, in my state, it's also happening a feminist movement, but the the causes are a little bit different because there is, the abortion is not legal, for example. So the the struggle there is against all these laws that criminalize women because having an abortion. Mm. So the causes there are a little bit different. So he said, like you're watching this as a human rights lawyer and as a professor of journalism. Um, in Northern California. What's your take on what you're seeing in Mexico right now? I love, Maria, that you said that this is not the first time. I feel like in the United States, all gendered violence is seen through the prism of Me Too. But that is not our paradigm in Latin America. Mm. Uh, Our realities are way more complex. And I do want to say that Me Too did not kickstart this conversation. And as uh, you have been very well covering this, it started over probably in 2015, 2016. We've had several hashtags, several mobilizations, and still both the government and the media, because this is also a very interesting part. In Mexico, the media is complicit, along with the government, in criminalizing victims that speak up. So it's obvious to me that the glitter protests, uh, there were acts of vandalizing. There were there was a beautiful graffiti. The the windows were broken, but if the windows and the doors were open, nada tendría que romperse. Nothing would have to be broken. Right. As a human rights lawyer, I definitely think that these acts are protected by freedom of expression. You cannot expect to silence these powerful voices. You cannot expect that. That is unrealistic. And one thing from all of this is clear. There is no Me Too without A, clear legal frameworks, and B, a solid press. In Mexico, coming from the student movement uh, from 2012, we had our kind of like our Arab Spring, where through hashtags, we broke media narratives. Right. So definitely this has been a really powerful and exciting thing for me to watch. I am really proud of the girls that are out there risking themselves and breaking these cultural norms and these glasses that are impeding justice. Yeah. So this story is not getting a lot of attention in the United States. And we wanted to at least focus on specific cases. And one of them, for example, Latino USA reported on the case of a young woman Her name was Lesbi Berlin Rivera Osorio, and she was found dead on a university campus in May of 2017. Maria, can you tell us more about what Latino USA reported when it came out with that story? Right. So we did a big piece about Lesbi, um, and yeah, she was found dead. Right. And there were a lot of evidence pointing at her boyfriend. Two months after Lesbi's death. On July 5th, 2017, Araceli's lawyers finally get what they were asking for, the surveillance videos. Sayuri, the lawyer, described these videos to me as we watched them. Este es el, el 2 de mayo, en la tarde, alrededor de las 2 y media, 3 de la tarde. Sayuri explains that the video shows that it's May 2nd, around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Lo que se observa es a Lesbi caminando junto con Jorge Luis y un amigo y trae ella el perro. Lesbi and Jorge are walking her dog together on campus. 
The couple appears in numerous surveillance images that span from the afternoon till the early morning when they meet up with two friends to drink on campus. At 2 a.m., the surveillance footage shows Jorge and Lesby alone. Then they start fighting, yelling. Jorge waits for Lesby to catch up to him and they start scuffling. Ella lo abraza para intentar calmarlo y él lo que hace es apartarla, la empuja. She hugs him, attempting to calm him down, and he pushes her. She almost falls down. He hits her on the head. Y él la golpea y se ve incluso como su cabeza se azota. They then continue walking to the payphone booth where she was found. And it would have been a case of just another young woman who gets killed and nobody knows why. But her family, basically, her mother kept on pressing. And apparently there's an update to this case. So, Gisela, bring us up to date on the case of Lesby because this was one of the cases that in Mexico como que se les colmó el plato, ¿no? O sea, las mujeres are just like, okay, we're, we're exhausted, we're tired of this. Right. So what is the update around Lesby's case? Yeah, and I'm really happy that you're uh, raising this issue, indeed, because I think Lesby's case was very paradigmatico, paradigmatical, maybe that's Spanglish. That works. Uh, so it's very symbolic because, A, authorities blamed Lesby, saying that she was drogándose y alcoholizándose, that she lived with her boyfriend, almost like... Uh, she was slutty, and that's why she was killed in this way. And we have to remember that femicides in Mexico are really a big thing. This is part of the context as well. Now, almost 10 women die every day in the country. 90% of rape cases do not go reported. And then Lesbi Berlin is killed, and authorities blame her for her death. And then the media follows, right? Which started this conversation, this hashtag, which I found really brilliant, hilarious, but in a way tragic and sad. You know, we're also kind of Mexican culture is very much uh, attention of these things. We started the hashtag Si Me Matan. I remember back in the day I tweeted Si Me Matan. It's because I've been non-monogamous for 10 years. Y tengo tanto print de leopardo en mi closet que I could be a sex worker. Whoa. So basically that hashtag is... Hashtag, if they kill me, and then you would fill it in, with, like, for today. Right. If they kill me, it's because I'm wearing tight black pants, an off-the-shoulder sweater, and high black stiletto shoes, and that's enough of a reason to kill me. That's enough of a reason to kill you, not only socially, but for the Mexican authorities and Mexican media, which is part of the problem, just replicating this. So indeed, um, a friend, a dear friend of mine, Sergio Beltran, has worked in the forensic analysis of these. There is evidence of how she was killed in UNAM, but still this evidence is not taken into account. And right. again, can there be a Me Too without the press? You're very right, Julio, to highlight that this is not getting picked up, not only by U.S. media, but by Mexican media either. There's a, a good, uh, buen panorama yeah. about this. And while well, I'm covering a lesbian trial, and for me that's a, a victory because I've been pushing this, this topic since that moment. Uh, so I think there's like some hope in that. Hmm. Yeah. Gisela mentions that What's going on with the women's, with these protests in 
in Mexico aren't getting the attention even in Mexico. And you're a member of the media. Yes. Um, you, were, you write for El Universal, which for people that don't follow the Mexican media, I mean, that is like writing for, I don't know, Maria, like, you know, the New York Times, Washington, like in Mexico, like it's a huge newspaper. It's a huge outlet. Is the Mexican media being complicit here with the government or what? I mean, there's always been those allegations, but what's your sense? Is this different or are we just seeing more of the same? I think it's their uh, lack of interest uh, because also most of people in media are men here in ah, Mexico. There's yeah. uh, where I work. It's the women in the in my newspaper are minority. So I think that's probably one of the reasons it's like a, a lack of interest. Uh, there's no gender perspective in the media. And there's also there's no such a rigor, rigor periodistico mm -hmm. with covering crime. So I agree completely with Gisela, but I think that young women reporters are pushing the agenda against all these old traditions. Yeah, it's interesting. And this is one of the things that we talked about. I don't know if you guys remember when we went to Mexico City uh, last October, we did the live in the thick with uh, journalists Gabriela Barketing and Catalina Ruiz Navarro. And we discussed the root of toxic masculinity in this gendered violence and how it's being covered, how it's being ignored, how class and race in Mexico impacts this movement. And what does restorative justice look like? And what happens with the punitive system that most men have harassed somebody in their lives? That is a fact that we have to come to terms to. And if we're going to send them all to jail, we're going to have to build a jail the size of the half of Mexico and the half of Colombia and the half of the... And <laughs> what the are we going to do? Yes. Yeah, and for sure. One thing that really... Um, I had a conversation recently with uh, Rosa Marina Flores. She's an uh, indigenous activist, uh, Zapoteca, and she's a feminist. And we were talking about justice and uh, indigenous communities and our white system of justice, which is based on punishment. So... When somebody does something bad, we punish him and we send them to jail. And that is our logic. Uh, and a lot of indigenous communities think about justice, uh, restorative justice. Right. So if I am being offended or they did something bad to me, that somebody will come to me to negotiate and ask me, why do I need to feel repaired? And this is what I'm going to get. And that might be, I don't know, money, uh, a psychologist or candy, I don't know, I mean, whatever, but it, it is focused on how to repair the damage you have done and not only punishing. And I, I really thought that that could be like the great idea that we need to deal with. And then more recently, we had uh, the fabulous Penny Leigh Ramirez uh, journalist and also Emily Corona to discuss the hashtag Me Too Escritores and the debate over anonymity with women coming forward. I was talking to some some journalists and they were like, right, they made the distinction that at least for the accounts that have been transparent with the way they're handling this information, such as the journalist account, Pumes Periodistas Unidas Mexicanas, or the Me Too Escritores, there have been others uh, that have been as transparent. But at least for the accounts that have been very transparent in how they're handling the information, the denounces aren't anonymous, they're confidential. You know, we were in Mexico like almost a year ago. Mm. 
So like in our style, no bullshit, sin pelos en la lengua. Mm. What has changed over the last year, over the last month that has kind of really pushed this to the next level? Melissa. I think uh, violence increased, sadly. Women are tired of not being considered persons by the, the government, not having not having found justice. Well, in the Me Too movement, many people said that wasn't the right way to protest. In this street protest, it was the same thing. So at this time, we are expecting the same answer every time women protest. So protesting is going to increase the violence of the protest until somebody realized that there's a problem. So I think the answer is that uh, violence against women increased, femicide increased, uh, and impunity increased also. Jesus, I mean, I don't even know how you can... I, I don't know how... ¿Cómo más mm. puede escalar la impunidad en México? Exactly. You know, I mean, it's like, how much more impunity yeah. can you have yeah. in right. México? Which is like, that is, you know, sadly, this has also been going on for decades in yeah. my country of birth. Although, yes, violence has increased, I think we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, what is violence? Is breaking glasses violence? I do not think so. Uh, is killing, raping, and harassing violence? Yes, that is violence. So that's one symbolic distinction that, that I would— You're saying that there's a distinction between what the protesters have done yes. and what has actually happened to women. That's That's your point, right? Exactly. And I think the conversation in Mexico has been very focused to the breaking of windows and glasses. Yeah. And then secondly, yes, homicides have increased at a horrible rate in Mexico. But that also has to do with the fact that we haven't sorted out the war against drug cartels. Hey, we're back and you're listening to In the Thick. I'm Maria Hinojosa with my co-host, Julio Ricardo Varela. We're joined this week by Gisela Perez de Acha and Melissa Mezcua. Let's get back to the conversation. Gisela, can you talk about something that's a little bit more specific in the question of violence against women in Mexico? It's online gendered violence as a way of, you know, kind of controlling, censoring, stifling voices, and this whole connection between bot farms and political power in Mexico, ¿de qué se trata? A ver. So, speaking up is one of the hardest things that a survivor can do. And I know it as a survivor of harassment and violence. I experienced it recently. And once you report, denounce, or file a claim, the entire world will be against you and you will be blamed for it and you will be criminalized for it. And you will, your friends suddenly turn your back on you. And I bet Maria can probably also speak a little bit about this. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, actually, you know, my rape occurred in Mexico and I still have not named the person who assaulted me because or, or talked really publicly with my family and the family that knows because por eso mismo, which it's just For like, oh, reason. my God, you know, you're going to open up this can of worms. Wow. Y entonces, Isela? Yeah. So speaking up is so hard in itself. And then the backlash that we receive when speaking up. That that's why anonymity was very important. And I was in the midst of the Mexican Me Too, uh, which was just one more hashtag in the series of hashtags that feminist women have tried to put forward to break this uh, oligarchic media narrative. 
Two of my ex-boyfriends were mentioned as harassers and abusers. I was giving legal advice to the 20-year-olds that were handling the accounts. Mm. And still, journalists like Ciro Gomez Leiva, the host of one of Mexico's most popular morning radio shows, called speaking up anonymously against male violence cowardly lynching. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you Mm. comparing speaking up against gendered violence with lynching? And one of the most interesting parts for me was it's not only the the offline backlash that you receive, but also a swarm of um, macho machitroles, we call them, like macho trolls. Wait, wait, they're called machitroles? <laughs> macho trolls? Wait. Macho trolls. Oh, my God, man. Mexicano, <laughs> Espanol Mexicano is the best. No, it's the best. Machitroles. Okay, <laughs> continue, Isela. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So this a swarm of machitroles, uh, what they do, and I've also experienced this as a feminist and being outspoken about abortion and, and being outspoken and a spoken critic of the government, uh, online gender violence, like honestly, like any type of machista violence, is a social sanction for stepping out of your gender role because calladitas nos vemos más bonitas. Mm. It's something that my grandmother always told me. Keeping quiet. You look more beautiful when you shut up. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That's, a, that's a translation and it's embedded in my brain. Wow. So what we see when you speak up, uh, it might be against gendered violence or it might be against your abuse or your harasser or it might be against the president who's an idiot. You know, uh, whatever you speak up against, you will start receiving this social sanction in the form of these robot accounts on Twitter. And what they do, I think, is very interesting because they send a, a photograph of AK-47s with post-its with your name on it. What saying, the hell? el jefe dio la orden, the boss gave the order. Holy shit. So it's death and rape threats for speaking up. And given that this has been developing a lot in social media and not on the press, on the mainstream press, like here in the U.S., these rape and death threats with AK-47s, with your name, are just very worrying. And the chilling effect and the silencing effect of that is... It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. You cannot be as a victim dealing with speaking up against your harasser or your abuser and then getting rape and death threats from this weird robot accounts on Twitter. Mm. Hmm. So, you know, a a lot of times we're still we're dealing with the same patriarchal machista bullshit. Mm. But one of the things that has changed is that what used to be thought of as left or right or center has also changed, right, over... And it's getting a little slippery. So, for example, now Mexico elected someone who is perceived to be from the left, Andres Manuel López Obrador, you know, um, sided, seemed, with women and LGBTQ rights. But is that, in fact, the truth? Um, What has or hasn't his administration done? And... How is his administration reacting to the protests? Are they welcoming and using it as a way to inspire openness or are they shutting down and you know going the road of impunity? Melissa. That was another reason for uh, the anger increasing in the feminist movement is that because feminists were expecting a lot from the new administration locally and nationally here in Mexico City with, a, with Claudia Sheinbaum, which is the first woman elected. Gobernando la ciudad. So I think that uh, it was 
just promises, empty promises of the so-called left administration. And it all started when AMLO announced he was shutting down the uh, refugios for victims of domestic violence, for example. Mm -hmm. It started with all that. And I think also because uh, the speech of the of Claudia Sheinbaum after the first protest in August, uh, I think it was 12th, it was that it was a provocation, a provocation. She didn't care about to listen women. She just went and started, this is against us, right? Mm. So that's what I felt. It was like a disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. I think the worst of the reactions, other than uh, what Melissa is uh, very rightly pointing, is when the president, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, was asked, How is was the government going to respond to this increased uh, violence against women? He said that he would use the Guardia Nacional to fix it. The Guardia Nacional is basically it's the model that that has uh, been put out on the streets to militarize the mm -hmm. streets mm. and to fight organized yeah. crime. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. all the things that the military was doing illegally, mm. this president has now legalized. And now when he was asked about violence against women, he was like, oh, yeah, let's just use the military to fix it. This is not a leftist government. We're very worryingly, I think, shifting into a new form of authoritarianism mm. surrounded by a really uh, demagogic way of, of ruling. And I mean, I do have to mention Gabriela Rodriguez, who's the head of the Ministry of Women. Mm -hmm calling the feminist protests, the glitter protests. And how do you say glitter in, 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 in Mexico? ¿Cómo se dice glitter? Brillantina. Brillantina. Entonces, ¿la, la protesta de brillantina? Mm -hmm. Diamantina o brillantina. Okay. Yeah, and it has kind of like become a symbol, right? Along with the green bandanas uh, that come from the Argentinian right. pro-abortion movement. Right, right, right. So it's kind of like those two. And then the Ministry of Women, Gabriela Rodriguez, called the protester feminazis. Sure, because it's the same thing, like like speaking up for our rights than killing people. Feminazis, the the woman from the Ministry of uh of, of of women. This is the head of the 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 government agency for women. Yes, calling the protesters feminazis in a supposedly populist leftist government that's supposed to be progressive and ran on the promises of protecting women's rights and indigenous rights and LGBTQ rights. Am I correct? Yes, you are. You're correct. Okay. So I got to tell you, I'm having this like, oh, this moment where, <laughs> because when I was growing up, for me, this whole notion of like Mexico was a corrupt place where the PRI was always in power. Right, right. And then I don't know what happened was that in the United States, Uh, a president actually had to resign because he was so corrupt. That would be Nixon. And then I was like, oh, okay. So there's corrupt governments in Mexico. There's corrupt governments in the United States. Mm. Okay. And now with this news that broke over the weekend, where there is new reporting from the New York Times, um, they published an essay in the opinion section by two reporters, Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly, Um, covering Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. I truly wish I could be more helpful with more detailed answers to all of the questions that have and will be asked about how I got to the party and where it took place and so forth. I don't have all the answers, and I don't remember as much as I would like to. But the details that, about that night that bring me here today are the ones I will never forget. 
They have been seared into my memory and have haunted me episodically as an adult. Yeah, I, I know about that, girl. I know about that. So that was the voice of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford giving testimony against Brett Kavanaugh. So these New York Times reporters um, have basically corroborated a Yale classmate, Deborah Ramirez, and her allegations, right? Mm -hmm. They've uncovered one sexual misconduct allegation that the FBI never investigated. Right. But this entire story has gotten has gotten a bit messy because after the essay was published, the New York Times had to issue a correction. So basically, this newest allegation that the FBI didn't look into was reported to the FBI by a male witness. But the woman this allegedly happened to, she refused to be interviewed. And one of her friends said she doesn't remember the incident. O sea, it begins to feel like Mexico and the United States in terms of government kind of corruption and cover up um, and, and the way they deal with women. They look very similar. Right. And like we had uh, Gabriela when she told us at our live in the thick recording in Mexico City that the Me Too movement is actually a global narrative. And it's not just Mexican. It's not just Latin American. It's not just from the United States. So given all this, why do you think here in the United States we've seen, we were able to see this Me Too as a moment in time, something that began, reached a peak, and then it's being talked about as starting to gradually get less and less. But in Mexico, it feels ongoing and it's only intensifying. How is this movement distinct? I mean, what can we learn from these Mexican feminists. What's your sense in your reporting? Do you think this is just a beginning? No, I think it's just beginning uh, a movement, the feminist movement. I know that it's been happening for for a lot of decades, but I think there's a young women, the students, feminist movement. Uh, there is going to be the real opposition of the actual administration, not the so-called right or the center of the, in the political parties. It's, just, it's in the streets that is the, the real opposition, el contrapeso of AMLO's politics right now. So I'm really hoping to see that. And it's because they're taking their women's life. It's urgent. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's organic. It's, uh, it's young. Isela, what do you think? Wow. Well, um, I mean, the Kavanaugh case really strikes a chord in me. Um, it's just insane how we can see, yeah, this uh, perpetuating impunity. And I mean, I think here in the U.S., uh, differently than in Mexico, the, the factor of whiteness and white supremacy mm. uh, is something also to weigh into consideration. Right. I'm not saying that in Mexico we're not racist. That's another diff very different <laughs> That's another topic. in the thick. We can bring you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I love how you phrased it, Julio, because I think we have a lot to learn from the South and we have a lot to learn from Latin America specifically. I feel like in Latin America, we've been dealing with authoritarian presidential figures forever. Mm. Like this is not new. Like people, mm. this is not new. Fake news. It's propaganda. We've been dealing with that since, I don't know, like the 1900s. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, people in power who want to centralize and just rule forever uh, and, you know, like true, make uh, all their and, and, and appoint all their bodies, their shitty bodies into powerful positions. <laughs> like we know that. But sounds like Chicago, too. <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere, right? So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, I would really encourage U.S. media to look down south mm. and say, okay, 
what are the historical lessons that we can learn from this? So that's one thing. And especially given that 2020 is right around the corner, how the online ecosystem works. And it's not only the hashtag Russians, but it's also the political online power that Republicans have amassed since 2016. And there's a lot of really good lessons uh, in Latin America regarding uh, the manipulation of online trends. There you go. Um, and then finally, how the Me Too Mexico is different from the, the rest of the world. There's a really, really good article in Foreign Policy it's called Me Too Global Impact, and it was published for Women's Day this uh, year. Even in Mexico, I think the conversation has shifted. I, I had a conversation with my grandma uh, right after the glitter protests. And oh. she was like, well, yes, obviously, if you ignore women, they will be very angry. I would be angry, too. I think they have all the, tienen todo el derecho, todo el derecho. They have all the rights in the world. Eso, la mujer mexicana, tienen todo el derecho. La mujer mexicana, las abuelas siempre, siempre saben, siempre saben. They always las know. abuelas siempre saben. Yeah, grandmas always know. And like my grandma is 90 years old. Wow. So definitely there has been, even if a little bit, there has been a shift in the conversation. And we have won that. We have to remember that Me Too is a cultural change. We need the press and we need the law. We need the precondition is the law and the legal system. We need a solid press that verifies the claims. And then we need also brave victims and survivors that come together and as sisters speak up. And very quickly, just because I don't want to leave it aside, one thing that we can get better and we should get better globally is uh, incorporating the queer movement mm. yeah. and LGBT communities into the conversation. And again, this is a huge topic, but uh, it has happened in the Me Too in the United States and I think globally. And I, I do want to say that transgender violence is also machista and patriarchal violence mm -hmm. and it must not be left yeah. aside. It's mm -hmm. part of the same conversation and we need to get better yeah. in incorporating queer and LGBT communities into this conversation. Okay, so let's move on to our final segment, which... I'm still trying to find the equivalent in Spanish, but this segment is called 2020 Shit Show. More than happy to accept any suggestions in Spanish on how we call it. I'm trying to think. Well, we think of a name for this 2020 <laughs> shit show in Spanish. La verdad, la verdad es de que sin pelos en la lengua. Um, I just want to get a sense from both Gisela and Melissa. You know, what do you think in terms of how Mexicanos um, in Mexico are, are seeing the U.S. elections for president? Um, or do they not even care? Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's this sense that, you know, that Mexicans and people in Latin America are watching, you know, everything that Donald Trump and the United States are doing. And what is your sense of how Mexicanos are seeing the 2020 election? And we'll start with you first, Melissa. It depends on what media are going to cover. Right now, I don't sense that much interest in what and in all the debates and the candidates and that stuff. But I think that Mexicans are paying attention in immigration topics, especially with all the, these migrant caravans mm -hmm. and all this racism. So I think that's probably, yes, they're interested. But I don't know if that's like a deception on a, probably they sense that Trump is going to be reelected. Mm. That, that's a big thing. There's a, that's, I think that's a really good point that you make. And you're absolutely right, Maria. I, I think there is this assumption that everyone in Latin America is like, oh, Trump, 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 and no one's paying attention. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Gisela, what do you think? I know what we can call a sh the shit show, el desmadre, un desmadre. <laughs> Eso. Gracias. Yo con el con el papelón y tratando de pensar, you know, thinking like a Puerto Rican and whatever, and now we get a desmadre. El 2020 desmadre. Dale. 2020 desmadre. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Isela, I what do you it. think? I almost feel bad about like laughing and joking about 2020, but we have know, to laugh like, a little it, bit yeah, sometimes. We have to. We have to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was just reading uh, yesterday, um, there was this fossa, this big mass grave that was discovered because of a horrible stench. And it has 119 uh, restos humanos, uh, human uh, bones and bodies. So, uh, and I'm saying this because I think... I don't know. When I was back there in Mexico, I've only been in Berkeley for a year. Um, I felt this sense that I'm too preoccupied of what's going on in my country to actually pay attention to another moron. Um, I do feel that it is not technology. It is not Cambridge Analytica. It is not Facebook. And it's sometimes the conversation is shifted towards blaming technology, whereas the problem is an inherent and deep historical racism that the U.S. is going to have to struggle with, uh, not only in 2020, but just for history. Yeah, I agree with Melissa. I think uh, migration would obviously be an issue. It worries me how quickly the Mexican government dobló la mano and just gave it to Trump. Boy, that was fast, man. They want for credit a Mexico in that used to be so nationalistic that they didn't yeah. even have, you know, McDonald's. Yeah. It was like, let me just kind of real quickly bow down. <laughs> yeah, that was very sad. Again, because our media system is so deeply corrupted, even though there's great efforts being made desde las trincheras from the ground up, like Melissa's amazing work. I do think that we have to stay alert because there's manufactured crises that are made to look bigger than they actually are. And journalism will play a key role in 2020 in both Mexico and the United States. Mm -hmm. How will the press cover Trump? How will the Mexican press cover Trump and how are we going to broaden this debate so that we are all in a loop, but we're also provoking and, and, and making change? Mm. So, but yeah, journalism will be more important than ever, especially in the online environment. Uno, dos, Isela Perez de Acha, who's a lawyer, journalist and a professor at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And Melissa Mesqua, reporter with El Universal newspaper in Mexico. Thank you so much for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thick. Muchísimas gracias a ustedes. Thank you to you. I hope to be back here soon. Gracias a los, a los tres. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And remember, dear listener, just take a moment to go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because, yes, it really helps us. Also, remember, you can listen to In the Thick on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell everyone you know to listen. In The Thick is produced by Nicole Rockwell and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow, Noor Saudi. Our audio engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. And our interns are Timitayo Fabengle and Lita Hollowell. The music that you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kep and ZZK Records. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening, my dear listener. Nos vemos. Orale. Claro, you say orale. You say orale. Orale, Orale, pues. Pues adios, pues. Adios, pues. 
I love when I crack myself up. Yeah, I love it too. You're so funny for yourself. <laughs> expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.